Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. everyone it's LaShonda from Labors of Love and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Y'all have no idea how excited I am to have this conversation. Today my guest is a licensed psychologist, a food relationship strategist, and the creator of my therapy cards. I have Dr. Ebony. Hi Dr. Ebony. Hey. I'm good. I'm really excited to have you here with me. So I'm going to start with you like I do all my guests and ask what is your labor of love? I definitely would have to say my labor of love at this point would have to be the therapy cards. They'll have to be, it's, um, I feel like it feels like a baby to me. Um, although, you know, it's not, well, let me say this. I think in the grand scheme of everything, my entire mission around being a psychologist has been to, uh, scale how we receive, well, make sure to put out information, but also scaling it to fit the business model and also the needs of the community. So I feel like I've done a good job of disseminating information freely on social media, putting things in the cards, and then helping people get funneled into actual one-on-one therapy. So I feel like this has been a baby of that entire process, like from grad school to now. I knew when I left grad school, I didn't want to be a, a journal writer or article writer for journals and stuff, but this is my way of public, you know, publicizing or uh, creating publication for people who are actually going to get the information. So that's what I would have to say. The cards are my publication. Mm. So let's do so many things and I love all of it. And I think there are so many avenues we can take it. So one let's start by helping people understand what you mean by publication. So I know what that is, but for my listeners who are kind of like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. As a psychologist, when you went to get your doctorate, there are certain requirements that, or expectations, we should say, that are expected of those who are contributing to the field by becoming a doctor. Can you just tell the listeners a little bit about what that looked like and how you have decided to do that in your own way? Yeah. So, you know, when you get a PhD, it's specifically a PhD because, you know, there's a PsyD, there's a PhD. And in the past, the PsyD has been more practice oriented and the PhD has been more research oriented. So the expectation is that if you have a PhD, you're doing scholarly uh, work around research and publish, like publishing that research. And you're mostly going to publish that research in what they call peer review journals, which means that your peers are looking at your work and you're publishing information for free, basically around areas that are of interest to you. So when I got my PhD, my area of uh, specialty was Black women, sexuality um, development, um, and that kind of thing. So it was assumed that I would continue to publish information around research around Black women's sexuality or whatever I wanted to do within the field of mental health to advance the field of mental health in that way. So in in the world of academia, it's often believed that you can only advance the field of mental health through research that you then write and publish in a journal. 
Um, but I always knew that wasn't going to be me. Um, I did the dissertation. I knew I wasn't going to be in academia my entire life. That's not something that I'm interested in. And I don't want to be forced to do research. Um, I want to have fun. And to me, research is fun sometimes, but no. So I decided that I knew I wasn't going to be a journal uh, writer. Um, and one of the things is I know that when we write in those journals, y'all aren't the ones reading those articles. Come on. Other people reading those articles are other professors, scholars, folks in academia. And I was like, well, who, where is the information getting to the people who we're actually researching on? If I'm researching Black women's sexuality, how do we actually get this information out to the Black women about their sexuality? And so it's assumed that um, organizations would pick up this information, health organizations would pick it up and disseminate it. And I just never felt that. So um, I created the cards so that I could actually advance the field of mental health for folks who look like me. Um, and give us some tools that we can actually use to actually help ourselves gain insight, do some internal work um, that is necessary that we're often not able to do within the field of mental health. So I took what I know, the research that I know, the things that I know to be true as far as um, information goes, and I created a deck for folks. I know we like cards. I know that uh, people like things. And I know that um, if we're going to approach mental health, a field that actually hasn't been as welcoming to us, then we have to make the approach a lot more welcoming. And so I put the card, I put the information there and I'll do the research on the other side with other organizations around the cards. And I do work with institutions um, to train them on how to use the cards and that kind of thing. But I wanted to actually put something in practice. Um, that we can tangibly use right now. So that's my contribution. And actually, um, I caught a lot of I caught a lot of issues with folks in academia. They were like, well, you know, what are you gonna do? Did you get your PhD for nothing? My cards were actually cited in a student's dissertation um, last year. No, Someone. this year. This year. Yes. So I'm like, you can't tell people how to publish just because it doesn't fit your model. So I'm excited about that. And uh, I'm happy that people are seeing the value in them as far as academia goes too, but more so on the side of practice. So we're going to talk more about the cards, but I just want to say yes, Dr. Ebony, right? So there is, there is a part of me that I know will never go away and I don't want her to go away. And it is that part that says, mm -mm. <laughs> I just call her mm -mm. Mm -hmm. that, you know, we are in a culture that creates systems and those systems are, um, mostly rooted in a supremacist uh, ideology and those systems then say there is something that is better and there is something that is less than and it permeates every single system that we encounter uh, education academia uh, food which we'll talk a little bit in everything there's mm -hmm. better and there's less than and within these systems the idea is that if you want to be considered better, then you have to follow this. And I, I absolutely love, respect, and admire that you, <clears throat> you took the system, got from the system what you needed, but you left a continual mark that says this is not necessarily the way that it has to be done. So kudos there. The other thing is um, there is something about a system that values talking to each other more than it does talking to the people with whom it proclaims to help serve and benefit. And <clears throat> that annoys me. So um, <laughs> annoy is a, is a kind gentle word that I'll use. It pisses me off 
you know, that so many people are, are thought of as subjects, thought of as numbers, thought of as the rats that used to get experimented on for decades in the past. Mm-hmm. And, and so then, you know, they talk to each other using jargon and words. And what I frequently said is I'm smart. I understand your words, but I don't need to use them. So how about we actually use words? And because other people don't use the words doesn't mean they're not intelligent or smart. I just don't need to try to use a $5 word when a nickel will get it done. Right. And so I, I, dis, I disturb academia too. And as people keep pushing that, that's one of the reasons, but you, a really good friend of mine, Dr. Tanisha Worthy, who uh, her, um, she used to podcast as her dissertation. Y'all out here giving me less and less excuses not to (laughs) not to keep going forward but I'm just like I don't want it they make me sick but that's it so yes girl we like cards and by we now I'm talking about heavily melanated folk particularly you know Africans of the diaspora in America (laughs) and I think about the influence of spades you know that has permeated you know my life Uno, right? Now we have things like uh, Black Card Revoked and, and all these cards. So there is this understanding within our culture that if we're going to gather, you know what I mean? Let's gather around who brought the cards. We got the cards, right? So when you come up with my therapy cards, this way to say, here is something that speaks to and speaks the language of our culture through its packaging, it's beautifully packaged, the imagery, you know, we, we can go a long time in a week without seeing images that look like us in a positive light. And that's not something we consciously recognize. It's very subconscious, but then you get your cards and all of a sudden you see yourself reflected in this beautiful light automatically. You like, oh, what's this? Oh, what's this, right? So please tell the listeners just, you know, you kept referring to it as the cards. The cards are amazing. And I want my listeners to just know what the cards are, your, your inspiration behind them, as much of the process as you can tell us, because embedded in it, not only do I know people will be like, oh, let me go ahead and get the cards for myself, but be inspired to think outside of the box in whatever area they find themselves. Yeah, thank you for that. And uh, I just want to say I'm too frustrated. That's why one of the, I just want to back up one of the reasons I actually stopped going to conferences, like the big psychological conferences, is that mm-hmm. we're just talking to each other and it's just a bunch of people walking around. Mm-hmm. The epitome like, of preaching to the choir. Yeah, I mean, like, it's just like, okay. <laughs> we just hear, but basically it's a reunion. Let's just call it what it is. Yeah, right. Um, but so one of the things that happened when I moved to Austin, I was still working a full-time job. And honestly, I wanted to open up a private practice or start private practice um, on the side, actually just to get travel money. And I tell people that's how it started. I was like, you know what? I don't want to touch my full-time money. This is going to be my travel money because I love to travel. I said, so I'll see about three or four people on the weekends and that'll be how it goes. Well, I moved to Austin and I was told by a colleague, she said, you're the only Black woman psychologist practicing here. You're the only black woman credentialed at your level to provide therapy. And I said, what? I just like, yeah, there are no other PhDs here in this city. 
who are black. Texas though. That's all I'm saying. Texas. Even if you don't know nothing about Texas, what I say is everything's bigger in Texas. You you go out to Texas and you are the only black woman psychologist practicing in, in that city. area in wow. this city. But we have to understand Austin for what it is, right? Because Austin kind of says that it's diverse and that it you know we have this diverse population and we don't. Um, and so you have all of these black and brown folks who are needing providers, but they're pushed out of the city to the the outskirts of the city. And so with that also comes pro- professionals like mental health professionals being pushed out too because if I'm not going to have opportunity here I'm going to go to where I will that's Houston that's Atlanta that's Charlotte that's DC like I'm going to go to where I see my people but honestly when I put myself out there to be in business to receive uh, people to come to therapy the private practice blew up and I could not see everybody because I was only practicing on Fridays and Saturdays um and then I would start having to see people in the evenings I was like okay I don't want to tell people no this is the evening and so then I was working my full-time job seeing people in the evening working on Fridays working on Saturdays now and I did that for I did that for three years I did that for three years three and a half years and so it got to a point where I was telling people no I had to raise rates and what I was seeing was people were less, you know, less and less able to access the particular service. I said, there's got to be something that we can do. Pandemic hit, right? The cards actually were going, supposed to start out as food relationship cards. I always knew I wanted cards, but I wanted food relationship cards first to deal with the coaching arm of my practice. But when the pandemic hit, actually, in, actually this was in October of 19. I said, you know what? I'm finding more and more there's a need for mental health resources that people can afford. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to back up off of the food relationship deck and I'm going to put out a therapy deck. But it was not supposed to come out at the time that it came out. And so when the pandemic hit, I was like, okay, talk to my marketing coach. And I said, you know what? We're going to back up and we're going to pause. And she said, you're going to go. And you need to do this now because people are at home. People need resources. And I did it, but it really started out as a means to actually give somebody the questions that I ask my clients every day in therapy. I package them up and put them all in a card deck. So no matter where you live, you can feel like you're talking to Dr. Ebony. Because one of the things a lot of people don't know is that you can only work with a therapist who's licensed in your state. In your state. So if you're in North Carolina and you find me on Instagram and you're like, I want to work with Dr. Ebony, you can't work with me because I'm licensed in Texas. So I took the questions, I put them in the deck, and therefore you can have the questions that I would ask in my therapy sessions. And I wanted people to feel like, oh, I can afford this. I can afford this. I probably can't afford therapy or afford her asking rates or even work with her due to geographical limitations. But at least I have some questions that a real therapist put in a deck that I can use to actually do some real work. And so when the pandemic hit, we went full steam ahead and got them out. Um, in May of 2020, and they took off. And people, and what that showed me was that people needed it. People needed a resource. People needed something they can afford. Because a lot of times now you'll find that a lot of us aren't taking insurance because insurance panels are crazy. And a lot of us, a lot of people just can't afford to pay out of pocket what therapists are asking. And therapists are all booked up. So we need to give folks something that they can use to help themselves in the meantime. And 
representation is important. So we need products and tools that people can actually see themselves reflected in. So all of that went into the creation of the cards and why I thought they were important to do and to put the food relationship stuff on pause. Oh, Dr. Ebony, like I love all that. And thank you for sharing um, so many things that you said, I just want to reflect on. Um, and, and it is absolute truth, right? Therapists are booked up. COVID, you know, therapists are um, definitely a profession that saw an uptick in business since the pandemic, um, a lot of us do not take insurance. I, in addition to me, I, I can't even tell you that insurance companies are crazy because I ain't never messed with them ever. And, and one of my main reasons is I recognize, and we're going to transition to talk about stigma and things like that. But what I recognize is that, um, psychology, the mental health field, the DSM, <laughs> as extensions of those things have long been catalysts for pathologizing the, the, the normal reactions to a messed up system. Yeah. And it looks to stigmatize or not stigmatize, but to pathologize and say, here's what's wrong with the person. And I'm saying, no, here's what's wrong with the system. I'm going to help the person, but in helping the person, we're going to look at what impact has the system had on you? And how can I destigmatize what you're going through? And so I've never used the DSM because I won't diagnose. Mm. That means, you know, I can't take insurance because an insurance company says you have to provide a diagnosis in order for us to reimburse. And I'm saying, mm, that's okay. We're going to have to find a workaround. And, and um, I respect that. I recognize that as inflation and cost of living and the things I have to do in order to take care of myself, to be the provider that I am, there are a lot of people who can't afford that. And so for me, I say, well, here is a weekly podcast and here is a weekly therapy Thursday and here is a weekly self-care Sunday. And I'm even on TikTok, which if y'all know me, you like, well, yes, I, my assistant, but I got me a young, fresh assistant who keep me, you know what I mean? So I, I do free workshops and, and I do the accessible things for people to have my voice. And when you said it feels so people can feel like they talked to Dr. Ebony, that is so important. The feedback I get all the time, you know, people, I could listen to you talk forever. And I always say, I hope my kids and husband feel that way. Cause they the only ones that's actually required to y'all can turn me off. Right. But when people said that it, it did tick, take my voice. Mm -hmm. here's this concept, you know, you can go back to those videos this many times because it is that personal impact that it's not just, oh, somebody, how do I, how many times do we as black bodied people, and I think we are subconsciously really good at this. We take something and then we make it fit for us. We do it in ways we don't even think about. We get something that's pretty whitewashed or not culturally competent. And we are able to take that and say, mm, okay, let me just flip it a little bit in my mind and think about this. Okay, I can make this fit for my life. And so we're walking around navigating a world where we got to make things fit. What it reminds me of is like, think back junior high, high school, when I'm singing a song, right? I'm singing an R&B song and I just switched the words just a little bit to fit me. Maybe it was a guy singing to a girl and I'm singing that song. Now I will sing those songs and I flip those words automatically because back then I just learned to like oh well I would be singing this to a boy so I just flip one word and it's fine y'all we do that all the time y'all who not navigating the world in black bodies you probably don't even that's probably not even something you've thought of mm -hmm. if you're in the LGBTQ plus community you've thought of it 
Mm-hmm. If you're in the margins of society, you have constantly had to go, how do I make this slight alteration to make this thing that's being publicly produced, mass produced and put out there fit my experience? Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that within this very needed field of mental health, you've provided something that somebody doesn't have to flip. They mm-hmm. don't have to like code switch their language input to be like, what they mean here? Oh, okay, they mean this. You just come right out. So absolutely love that. If someone wanted to get your therapy cards, what is the, um, as you created them, how do you envision people using them? Maybe individually or even with a group of friends or within a family? How are you envisioning this to help people really look at their mental health? Yeah, I was super intentional about who and how, right? I wanted them to be general enough that everyday people who have never encountered the field of mental health could actually use them. And I wanted them to be um, effective enough that therapists could use them in session two. So that's a hard balance, right? And so um, there's a lot that went into changing the wording. Like, I know what this means, but people who've never encountered mental health, are they going to know what you mean by effective? So that's actually where the glossary idea came from. So there's a glossary in here so that we can all be on the same page. Let's define these words. When I say effective, another therapist is going to know, but you're not going to know if you're not in this field using this language. And one of the main things that people say is, how do I develop that language that y'all use? How am I supposed to say it like that? So I put a glossary in here. So one, we could be on the same page. And two, we can acquire some additional language um, that we can use to actually work through some things. So I... So when people use them, therapists use them as in-between session assignments. They use them to help move session along, sessions along because we get stuck too. And we're like, what do I ask? I don't even know what to do. So I wanted therapists to also have something that they could use to help move sessions along and help people feel more comfortable with answering or just give people something to talk about. And on the individual side of things, uh, people use them solo. Um, I've seen mothers and daughters use them. I've seen people use them in the barbershop. When we came out with the male, you know, the men's deck, people using them in the barbershop, um, cigar lounges, like cigar nights, those kinds of things, girls nights. Um, during the pandemic, there were a lot of bonfires and girls nights and uh, brunches and uh, team empowerment sessions. Um, I actually am working with the Boston Public Library now who um, just got the go ahead to use them um, as, in a pilot program where people will be able to come and check out the cards. Um, just like they do books. So yes. that's super exciting. So organizations <sighs> are using them, schools, camps, um, everybody's like able to use them. And, and it's just so mind blowing to me that this type of resource exists that people can plug and play in their industry and use it to actually reach people and have conversation with people around mental health. That's super important. Like if a, a library can have them for you to check them out, but you can also use them at your girl's brunch, Blows my mind. Blows Come my mind around anything I ever thought was going to happen. Well, I, I just want to continue to, to juice you up, but also just talk about like, I feel like that is genuinely the essence of the Black woman. Mm-hmm. Um, we're versatile um, across so many different ways. Uh, I think in ways that sometimes people are dependent upon, but take for granted. And the fact that it can be in a barbershop, a library, a school, and a therapy office, come on, right? That That is so dope. So there's the woman's deck. 
there's the men's deck and there's the team deck as well, right? So I also appreciate that you are hitting these demographics so that the the need to change that one little thing to make it applicable is reduced. So people are in there and be able to ask those questions of themselves. Absolutely love it. <clears throat> and so when we talk, so I want to pause and talk about like how I met you. And so um, Dr. Ebony was a keynote speaker at the annual Ask Me Who I Am conference on youth culture here in Cincinnati. And this was our, I don't, this won't be a lie if I'm wrong. It's just time. Well, no. So <laughs> it's at least eight. It was, I think it was our eighth one because I was two days before going into the hospital to have the twins uh, six years ago. <laughs> So, and then we had done a couple before that. Yeah. So we were, this was like our eighth annual conference and Dr. Ebony was there as a keynote and it was just, she got up there. So I was introduced to her by one of the, uh, one of my friends and one of the, whatever you want to call it, people who, you know, put the conference together and Tanisha Worthy, she's a guest. She's been a guest on the podcast and she's like, you gotta meet Dr. Ebony. And so we met and we were talking, but she went up there and talking. I was like, I'm pretty sure we're related. Like we gotta be like, you know what I mean? I don't know how far down the line, but <clears throat> man, we speak the same language. She is so dope. Um, and when you talked about the cars being in the barbershop, this is what cracked me up. So I'm sitting at a tap, sitting at a back table. This was like during lunch. And there are three men, three black men, and we will call them old. They're not old at all, but let's say forties and older. And me and Tanya were sitting there and I'm eating and they, they're friends and they got to talking. And this was right when the NBA playoffs were happening. So they're talking basketball and all of this stuff. Right. And I'm sitting here and like, I don't want to say a word. I just want them to keep talking because it was the essence of the barbershop happening at the table. And I turned to Tanisha and I was like, girl, it's like being able to sit in at the barbershop, like just the way they talk to each other. And I started to think about how the essence of the barbershop, which for a lot of Black men was like the safe haven of community where they could go and really be themselves with other Black men. Some of that, <clears throat> we're losing some of that. One, COVID put some things in place. Now, you know, people got a book, a book of time, you know, like you would do in other things. And so that essence of just coming in and having the chess, chess game going and having the older men there who are speaking, there was like the essence of some of that is, is being lost. And to sit there was just like so dope to be like oh like I love this feeling and so Dr. Ebony did her thing and then after they had a raffle and one of the gentlemen at the table won a deck of cards and when I tell you this man was smiling he sat down in his seat he cracked them cards open and then the other two men were like oh let me see <laughs> like it went from the barbershop to like two excited adolescents who were like oh look at oh look at and you know what I mean so just to tell you like right. the impact of your work across these demographics and how I got to witness the excitement of these men, because usually we say, you know, oh, men don't buy, but we got all these things, the excitement wow. that they had around your cards. Cause I was like, well, can I see? And they were like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just, it was, it was amazing mm -hmm. to see the excitement that they had 
to receive this thing. They were talking about the art on there. They were talking about, oh, that's a good question. I mean, just the moment for them to receive it and to engage with it, probably I would assume beyond your wildest imagination when you set out to do this. So I wanted to tell you that story because I absolutely loved watching them engage with your work. I never knew that. Like I'm getting chills. Like I'm, I, I never knew because I was sitting up front, right? Yep. And I was like at the the speaker table, and I couldn't. I knew that I know exactly who you were talking about, but I couldn't see how they were responding to it and them opening it. And so just to hear that is is a dream. It's a dream, and and it blows my mind still. It blows my mind all the time that people can see and be excited about doing mental health work like it it is like this is for me this is for me somebody thought of me when they did this and and we have something it blows my mind well I'm so glad I got to share that story with you you. um because I I loved it so when you did your keynote you talked a lot about stigma and Mm -hmm. I would love for us to talk about that a little bit mainly around but yes there's stigma around mm-hmm. mental health and, and and that's been talked about even on my podcast but let's talk about how that stigma is warranted and I feel like I do I'll talk about this sometime but like I love the way you were able to articulate it and I would love to help people understand no matter what body they're walking around in there is a reason mm-hmm. why marginalized communities are like nah I'm good and mm-hmm. while there is definitely benefit when you are engaging with mental health practitioners who are culturally competent and trauma responsive the amazing healing that can take place, but we cannot ignore the long standing harm that our field has done to people. And just since they'd be like, well, you just need to go to therapy. And that was the point that you can, and I like, I almost threw something at you, but in that really good, I'm relating to you girls, stop it kind of way. Um, Because I'm like, yes, yes, yes. But if I say yes, every people, they gonna put me out. So I'm gonna just sit here and sit on my hands and close my mouth. But um, just overview, can you talk to the listeners a little bit around particularly and African-American communities, families, and cultures, but in general, why we have to have a better understanding of why the stigma exists versus just trying to say it shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, this this is something that is is super meaningful to me because I, I think that when we know the nuances, when we know the background, we'll just stop saying some things. So just to start out, like back to the slavery days, like in 1840s, drinktomania, right? That was a term, that was a mental health diagnosis by a doctor around escaping your master, escaping slavery. So it was said to be a mental health disorder if you wanted to escape. So think about the gaslighting that is just wrapped up in that diagnosis. And that's the way that diagnosing has started. And there's a lot of gaslighting that has been wrapped up in diagnosing, especially when you don't talk about the system. The system is wrong for thinking that it can hold hostage another human body for its own gain. Mm -hmm. There there is something disordered about that, right? But the fact that you're going to gaslight me into thinking I'm wrong for wanting to leave these conditions, (laughs) 
a lot of other things are happening like that in the diagnosis that we have. So when you tell somebody you need to just go to therapy, you have to understand what that means for a lot of people who look like us. That means getting a diagnosis that may not give accountability or hold accountable the systems that have created the symptoms that I'm actually holding, right? And so now I have to go to somebody who's going to take my cultural practices, my cultural experiences, my religious experiences, and put them in a box of abnormality. You're going to pathologize it and say something's wrong with me instead of saying, I can see why you are depressed. I understand that you hearing voices is a spiritual thing. I can understand why you, why your connection with this being is so great instead of making it seem like something's wrong with me. Because historically, that has been the thing, especially when it comes to black and brown bodies. And that's been a way for them to disconnect us from our, our core of our root, our origins, right? Let's call everything that you do wrong if it doesn't fit the model of white. And so a lot of the things that we were blamed for, told was wrong with us, was because it didn't fit the model of whiteness. And that's just black folk. If you think about indigenous people, indigenous people were sent to schools so that they can unlearn their origins. They can unlearn being who they are. And that's why we have so many kids who were killed. That's why we have so many people who were beaten because they were beaten to be white enough. You need to change your dialect so that you can sound white enough. You need to change the words that you use so you can sound white enough. Those practices, those clothes, you need to get rid of them so that you can fit within the model that we're trying to make you fit. And if you didn't want to do that, then something must have been wrong with you. So we have to understand that a lot of the pathologizing is wrapped up in trying to get us to align more with whiteness. Let's even back up to the Harlem Project, which was um, one of in the 1940s, which was one of the ways that they said, we're going to bring mental health to the Black community. We're going to create this project where talk therapy, we're going to bring mental health. People are going to learn how to talk. We're going to give them resources, but it was all wrapped up in how do we decriminalize Black folk? How do we keep juveniles, teens from becoming people who are passed through the justice system? How do we keep them from becoming criminals? And so when you talk about talk therapy, if you're going into therapy with somebody who's not culturally responsive, who doesn't know anything about you, because remember at this time, there probably weren't a lot of therapists who looked like us. So the people who we're going to talk to are going to be seeing the things that we're bringing to them through their lens. And their lens is going to be whiteness. And so if you're telling me that I need to talk to somebody, then you already see me. The premise is Black folks don't know how to be civil. Black youth don't know how to be civil. And the only way we're going to change them into civilized human beings is if we keep them out of the justice system, keep them from being criminals because it's inevitable for them. And so all of this was the premise and foundation of mental health for Black folk. So when we tell people just to go to therapy, we're telling them to ignore all of those things that our ancestors, people who came before us, they knew this was the culture. And that has been passed down through our families, right? So now what grandma told mama, what, what grandmother's mother told her, what grandmother's grandmother told her was that we don't tell people our business because when you go talk to those people, they are gonna bring, they're gonna remove you from the home. They're gonna pathologize you to the point where you're gonna be institutionalized. That's gonna break up the family. We're gonna be looked as, as bad. And we already have issues within our community that we can't afford to actually have our families broken apart. So to keep ourselves safe, we sought refuge in the church. So now you see a lot of people saying, well, just quit telling people just to pray about it for a long time. That's all we had. That's all we had. So 
we have to understand this background. We have to understand what was at play, but we can quit telling people just go to therapy, bring it to present day. It's still happening. When people voice concerns about wanting to harm themselves or wanting to escape through the modality of suicide, a lot of times they're institutionalized. That's people's initial experience with the field of mental health. And so if that's what people are experiencing, of course they're not going to go because they're still being seen as problematic versus actually just saying, okay, so I hear you want to escape. What other options are there? Talk to me more about your need to escape versus, oh, you're crazy. You want to commit, you want to die by suicide. You know, so all of these things are constantly at play, but the general public doesn't know this. All we see is that therapy is something that we're doing more. So now everybody needs to go. And I'm sorry to tell us, everybody doesn't need to go to therapy because every therapist is not going to receive that person with care and going to be responsive to the things that they need. Because going to therapy for a lot of folks can be harmful, especially if on the other side of that is somebody who's more aligned with whiteness than the experience that you need them to be aligned with. During the pandemic, it happened. A lot during the social unrest, you had therapists who would say things like, well, we don't know really what happened with George Floyd. We need all the evidence. So you really can't be experiencing trauma around that because that didn't really happen to you. And we don't really know what happened. So you're telling people just to go to therapy when on the other side of that is information like this. Or you can't, Brianna, they had some issues going on. We, we know that they were criminals. They, had, they were engaging in criminal activity. So what else is going on? Or what, what should you be doing differently than focusing on that? What are some things you can do? And not understanding that the things that some therapists recommend do, just go outside and go for a walk. Many of our neighborhoods are not walkable. So it's just a lot of things that we have to take into consideration before we tell somebody, oh, you just need to go to therapy. It's not that easy and it's, 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 can be harmful a lot of times. Girl, I mean, I know it, and I yet my body was still getting activated. I'm just oh, right, and I so thank you. One, yeah. thank you for that. Two, I am a person who truly does believe that therapy can be helpful. It's yeah. not all just talk therapy and things, but and 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 while I know this, there was something about hearing you say this during the keynote that allowed me to even pause within myself and go, how am I communicating this to folks? What am I saying? Yeah. And, and just give that pause. So, so that I appreciate that. While some might say, well, the people who saying they not going to therapy or don't want to go to therapy, they don't know this history. It's in our blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's in our DNA. Mm-hmm. It's in our visceral responses right? It, it is in our epigenetics, which is how our genes express themselves throughout generations based on what has happened in the past. So we know within ourselves. And when you think about the ways, and, and, and I'll be honest, like the, the secrecy that was necessary in the past, keep it within the home. Don't be telling people our business. Some of it frustrates me now. I get it. I'm like, come on, we got to talk about this. And I just mean within my own family, right? Mm -hmm. But then to go back to the necessity that it was at some point and realize that's what got passed down, not just the behavior itself. Mm -hmm. Don't talk about it. Keep it here. Just go to the church. But 
the way our body responds, if that's violated, that's also passed down. Like the lack of safety that we experience in a regular basis, the, the looking over our shoulders at who's coming to take who away. When you were during the keynote, you specifically, and this was a point that I have literally heard more than one person bring up since the conference was talking about the uncle in the back room. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah. So in our community, this is funny to me because it, it's just so real. For a lot of us, one of the things that we hear all the time is that, oh, that's just Uncle Joe in the back room. Or what we hear is Uncle Joe went to war. If you're young enough to know that Uncle Joe went to war or old enough, shall I say, that Uncle Joe went to war, Uncle Joe came back, Uncle Joe's not right. So one of the ways that we protected each other from the system was to house our own people in our homes so that they wouldn't get institutionalized or taken to a place where they would not be cared for. So if the uncle went to went to military back then, it was called shell shock, right? So you had shell shock, you had battle fatigue, all of these things, right? So you come back, what we now know to be PTSD, depression, anxiety, and stuff, they weren't the same people who left because they were experiencing a lot of trauma and that trauma changed essentially the way their brains are wired and what they how they see the world. So when they came back, there may have been alcohol issues, drug issues, or just mental health issues alone. And so we put them in the back room or put them in a room so that they would be safe. Because the mental health field historically would see that and then put those people in an asylum where they would then get worse or where they would be forgotten about isolated or heavily medicated to the point where nobody recognized them. So for black families, it was safer and also a lot more cost effective for us to just house our own and to keep our people to ourselves because that way we can put eyes on them. We know they're okay and we can keep them safe um, because we can't, we couldn't trust the system to do that. So again, <clears throat> I was sitting at a table where mostly everyone was 40 or up. Mm-hmm. And when I tell you after your keynote, and even during when you were talking about this, people start naming their relatives. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, I had an uncle this. Well, mine was auntie this, right? And so there was just the realness of that. And I, by and large, my listenership, according to the analytics, are people of age who I know somebody like, wait a minute, was that what was going on with uncle so-and-so or cousin so-and-so, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we can understand the why. You know, I, I think um, curiosity and compassion are two words that I say everyone, I hope everyone learns to breathe into their lifestyle. Being compassionately curious allows us to inquire or be curious about the why of something instead of what it just is. I am curious about why we don't do this instead of just being like, oh, I'm going to follow that and say, I'm not going to do it, or that's stupid. We need to, right? And so much of the, what we call generational gaps, I believe those gaps can be um, shortened or smaller with sheer curiosity instead of judgment, Mm -hmm. instead of they did it this way and that was dumb and looking and we should do it this way. And I can't believe they doing it this way. Let's get curious because there is wisdom across all the generations, and imagine if we were able to take that and combine that right if we were able to use the wisdoms of all the generations instead of just staying very stagnant where we are I think all of 
us would just be better. But I, I, I appreciate you sharing that. I need people to understand that even those of us in the field doing the work are not disillusioned by where our field came from, um, the harm that it's done, even the, um, the APA, the American Psycholo- Psycholo- Psychological Association, uh, put out a statement, I think a year or two ago, uh, acknowledging its role in the pathologizing um, and its roots in racism, white supremacy, and all of those things. So it's not to say it's not there. This is why I completely understand when people contact me and it's like, um, if I can't work with you, can you tell me a black therapist, black male therapist, or, you know, a black queer therapist, I need someone who can relate to me. And so I'm putting that out there and, uh, you know, who knows when I, this was way in the first season of the podcast, but talking about, yes, you finding a therapist is an interview. Mm-hmm. it is not about the therapist assessing uh, well, part of it. it can they help you but it, do you feel this would be a good fit and then if you realize it's not leaving it's okay mm-hmm. have the you know being open and honest about that um to those who listen and I've done my share of talking with them too but my white body therapist you know recognize you got to recognize the lens that you're coming through and that curiosity and compassion compassion is the utmost necessary you know the number of times that I I just in this I thought of this and I get random in case you didn't know that but it always has you know relevance um but I was talking with someone who works in so what we call JFS uh, jobs and family services CPS you know it's called different things around and how um a young black girl was removed from her family because the mom was accused of abusing her child um, scolding her with hot water mm-hmm. is how it was framed. What actually happened is the mom gave the daughter braids. So, you know, when we use synthetic hair, <clears throat> um, for those who don't know, uh, braiding hair with synthetic materials is not human hair. And so it gets fuzzy and frizzed. And so one way that you reduce that frizzing is to take really hot water and dip the braids into that to set the synthetic fibers and the the poor baby got burned and it was called an allegation that her mom was abusing her see when you're not culturally competent you sitting up here taking children from their homes and saying and now this allegation stays on the record of the mom and all this Mm -hmm. stuff all because you don't know that this is how we set synthetic braids right? So things matter. I am not saying that there are not children being abused of all colors, all races, all ethnicities. Um, unfortunately, the reality of that is too true for me. I, 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 I'm proximate to that. But it's in the not knowing and the judgment that precedes curiosity that is why people say, this is why. This is why we don't say nothing. This is why we don't go in there. Don't trust them don't trust this system. And so, and by and large, don't get me wrong, the system is untrustworthy. (laughs) The systems I don't trust is great, like, you know, but anyway, so I I wanted you all to hear that um, coming from somebody other than me too, because, you know, sometimes people get kind of doing, like, oh, Shonda always talking, it's like, "Mm -hmm," hearing it from somebody else. Um, Real quick, also, um, because I knew 
we could talk forever, but mm-hmm. I don't want you to leave without um, just talking a little bit about your work as a food relationship strategist. Those three words put together, I think people know what each of those three words mean individually, but when you put them all together, what does that mean? And what does your work in that arm of your business do? Well, I, I think it's all related, right? So my role as a food relationship strategist was also born out of the, the things that I see in the field of mental health around how we engage with food. It's very much like the, the setting the braids in the hot water or getting burned by a straightening cone, for those of us who can remember. You know, it, it's the things that we see when we go into offices, the people who don't look like us that they deem as problematic, but they aren't looking at the systems. They aren't culturally responsive. They aren't culturally competent. They are not rooted in the cultural practices, so they don't know. So when you talk about food and you talk about Black folk, and I'm from Mississippi, and you talk about the the types of the types of food that we eat. And so if I come to you and I have issues with my weight, or if I have issues with my physical health that could be rooted in the foods that I eat, well, you're going to tell me because you're not culturally responsive, culturally competent. So you'll tell us that our greens are bad, but then recommend that I eat kale. You'll tell me that my oatmeal or that my rice is bad, but then you'll recommend that I eat oatmeal. You'll tell me that my my rice is bad. I shouldn't eat rice or I shouldn't eat this, but I should eat quinoa and those kinds of things. So you're talking about taking people's cultural practices away from them and demonizing them because you don't really understand what it's like to have cultural experiences around the types of food that we have. And a lot of the types of ways that we've been told how to eat are aligned with whiteness. Taking away a lot of our cultural practice, so a lot of the mental health stuff that's aligned with whiteness, the same thing is happening with our food. And we do not know that. And we have a lot of mental health issues that is wrapped up in how we see our bodies, the aversion that we have to our bodies, the eating disorders, A lot of that is rooted in systemic stuff, but we don't know enough about the roots of of dieting to actually begin to address how we are showing up with food. And so I like to start out educating folks around the roots of diet culture and it started very um, in a very anti-Black ways. So if you read the book, Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Stream, she talks about um, anti-blackness and diet culture. She talks about ways in which our foods, cultural foods were stripped from us so that we can align more with whiteness and that there's a lot of racism weaved throughout diet practices, diet culture, and we see it everywhere. We see it everywhere. We were taught directly and indirectly that our bodies are something to be feared. Our bodies are something to be disliked and our bodies have been demonized. And if you look at it, you see it everywhere. I pay attention to it now everywhere. So as a food relationship strategist, I'm helping people understand how did we get here? Why do you see your body in the ways that you see your body? And how does that dictate how you show up with food? Many of us are engaging, reinforcing scarcity mindset and wondering why we're struggling struggling with anxiety and depression around food and that kind of thing. So I call it a strategist. Actually, this is a term I actually made up. Food relationship strategist is me making up something because I didn't feel like I was a wellness coach. I didn't feel like I was a weight loss coach. I just didn't like any of that. I was just averse to all of that, right? Because I did work as a weight loss coach and I was like, this is oppressive. I'm telling black women that their bodies aren't good enough. 
and I don't want to do that anymore. So who can I be? What can I be that can still, that still encompasses the work that I want to do? And that's how I came up with food relationship strategies. I want to strategize, partner, collaborate with other Black women around why do we show up with food in the ways that we show up? How can we change this? What are the, the colonized ways that we've been taught to think about our foods? And is that still driving the ways that I want to change my body? Is that still driving my exercise routine? Is that driving the way I speak to myself? Is that driving the way that I show up on outings with my friends? Like, is that guiding like my overeating? So you hear this term like emotional eating. What's driving that? And why is emotional eating bad when we all do it? We emotionally eat when we're happy. That's not stigmatized. But emotional eating around grief and sadness is. So we got to really stop. And really think about the things that we've been taught in order to start to course correct. And that's to me what the strategizing is all about. It's like, how do we pause, take this information, really dissect it, really get to the root of, is this helpful? Oh, this is a bunch of BS, right? So I'm around here eating oatmeal, but I can't eat rice. I can't eat fruit. Like what? And so it's a lot of like, so wait, the messages that even our mamas taught us, if you don't eat all of your food, the kids in Africa are going to start, wait a second now, wait. So if I eat it, they're still going to start. So what are we doing is really rewiring because a lot of the things that we're holding on to absolutely make no sense. And if we stop and course correct, we'll see and give ourselves permission. Oh, okay. I can, yes. I don't have to eat all of this or yes, I don't have to say no to that. I can eat what I want. I can trust my body to give me what it needs. And a lot of working through your food relationship requires that we work through trauma to reconnect ourselves back to our bodies so that we can listen to our bodies. So it's a whole bunch of work that, re that is required for us to, to kind of get on the path of building a healthy relationship, which is why I call it strategizing because it's a long process of just unlearning. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's again, particularly to the... Um, the people who listen all the time, just touch on so many of these things. It's all connected. Mm -hmm. When we get disconnected from our bodies, our body is never not communicating with us. That's right. But what happens through trauma, relational trauma, developmental trauma, single incident trauma, is that we get disconnected yeah. from the communication of our body. It doesn't mean it stops talking. It just means we stop being able to hear it Okay. or it scrambles our receptors and we don't understand its language. And so it, we feel a sensation, but we will automatically, because of the trauma we experienced, assign a meaning to it. And what our body was saying, well, well, it, in that moment, it wasn't saying I'm hungry. It was saying, I need attention, not mm -hmm. food. But if we don't understand that we'll give it food instead of attention. Well, sometimes it's telling us we need food and instead of giving it food, we get right. And so being able to reconnect with our bodies through going through addressing and healing from some of the trauma we've had allows us to do that. The other thing, this goes back to what you were saying, all the way back to how colonizers came over here and took children away from their parents. So another thing is children have always been the route mm -hmm. of colonization, mm -hmm. of disenfranchisement of that because if you can disconnect the children from their families then the the connection the cultural connection the language connections all of that that goes between caregiver and child family and children if you can disrupt that it has to be replaced though mm -hmm. that's the thing like 
children have to be connected to something. So they insert themselves, whiteness in the systems of whiteness. Oh, we took your language. We'll give you a new one. Mm-hmm. We took your, your attire. We took your, your clothing. We'll, we'll give you new clothing. And so that has happened throughout all of the history of colonization. And if we're able to pause enough and recognize that we are all colonized, like we have colonized mindsets, even when we're actively saying like, I want to decolonize my practice or the way I live or my food, we have to first recognize in what ways has it been colonized. And so to be able to pause and go like, so I'm going to go back to my three questions that I, I frequently say when we come across something, I believe there are three important questions we should ask ourselves. The first question is, who told me that slash where did I learn it? The source matters. Keep tracing that back. Well, who told them? Well, who told them, right? So what is the source of this information? Question number two, is it true? Slash, is it still true? Some things that were true are not necessarily true now. I get that we needed to put Uncle Ray in the back. At that time, we really did, right? And maybe we still do, but maybe there are more options now than there were, right? So is it true, says, is it still true? And the third question is, who is benefiting and who is being harmed by my belief in this? There is always a benefactor. Search for the benefactor. And it was a moment. I I can't tell you the date. I was in my car. It was a moment when I recognized that the benefactor of me hating my body Mm. was some witch white man somewhere Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. I, in that moment, refused. So this goes all the way back to the beginning when I said, there's just a part of me that goes, "Mm -mm." Mm -mm." Mm -mm. stepped up and said, nah, we we, we ain't doing this no more. So you mean somebody is making billions of dollars off of me hating my body? And not only will I never see a dime of it, but I'm contributing to their paycheck? Mm Mm-mm. I'm gonna have to find a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so if we can just get curious about those things, it doesn't mean we automatically have the answers to go forward, but it gives us a space to go forward from. We can go, okay. So then we can say, well, what are the resources that are available? Because they're out there. There are people who are having these conversations. I'm so glad, uh, Dr. Ebony, that I got to meet you. But Dr. Ebony was talking about this before we met. Mm-hmm. She ain't just start talking about this on this podcast, right? So then you go, oh, now who can I go look for, mm-hmm. right? So that episode when I was talking about <clears throat> social capital, this is building our social capital. This is saying, hold on, I was listening to LaShonda's podcast and Dr. Ebony, let me go look her up, right? And what we didn't get to talk about is how she real real on her social media <laughs> and how, you know, she she also had to deal with a system that was telling her, uh-uh, depersonalize your social media. You're a doctor, you're a professional, you're a therapist. This is how you should put information out there. And she said, mm-mm, because she got a mm-mm in her too. And her was like, nah, no, I'm coming out here and I'm talking to my people the way my people need to be talked to. I'm giving the information the way my people are going to hear it. So following her on social media and then you go, well, who is Dr. Ebony connected to? Oh, oh, let me go read that book, Fear in the Black Body. Let me go read my body is not, the body is not an apology. Um, So all of a sudden, this thing that wasn't even a concept you were aware of, now you realize there's a bunch of people out here talking about it. And there's an even bigger bunch of people who are still trying to find their way through it. So then we build community around people who just trying, just trying to figure it out. That's what they can't take from us, y'all. That's what they've never been able 
to take from us. That's why despite all that we've been through, we still community like nobody else because they have not been able to take that from us. So if we can build community around our mental, emotional, spiritual health in a way that doesn't make us think we have to conform to the whiteness and systems that they've put in place, but that we can be us and be healthy. That's what I'm talking about. I love it. Love it. Dr. Ebony, I appreciate your time spending with us today. Is there anything I didn't ask, anything we didn't talk about, or any parting words that you want to leave with the listeners today before we end? I, I love it. I think I'll leave it with community. I think a lot of times we kind of see on social media, you know, talk about, well, introvert this, extrovert that, don't invite me, but invite me. One of the things I need us to understand that you said so beautifully is that we community like nobody else. We cannot exist in isolation. And existing in isolation has been a way that the systems have have kind of detached us from our roots. And so while we do need space and time to rest, space and time to re-up, space and time to kind of get back to ourselves, don't let not being in community with people be your norm because we need each other for our mental health. We, we do need each other. And as much as, as much as we irk each other, we love each other just as hard. So don't let, don't let them, the messages that we see on social media around needing to be by yourself, needing to, to always do things alone, be something that you internalize because we do need community. Beautifully said. And I, I, li- I am, I'm so grateful that you are now part of my community. Yeah, so welcome too. and thank you. <laughs> I want to give a special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides all the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, and y'all, my guests, my listeners, y'all know I love y'all. Thank y'all for tuning in and making the choice to listen. If you have suggestions for content or guests, or you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at www.thelaborsoflove.com. Don't forget we're on all the major social media outlets, y'all, even TikTok. If y'all ain't following me, what you doing? All right, don't forget the t-shirt line is back. You can find it on shop at the website our youtube channel has all the therapy thursday videos and if you have not already go ahead and give us that five star rating write a review and share the podcast with your loved ones and friends until we connect again you all be well